We're starting our new series uh, today. It's called Real Marriage. We're going to be diving into God's word and looking to the design of what marriage is. And so today we're going to be talking about how marriage is vertical by design. Now, um, one of my favorite things about getting ready to do sermon prep is I love researching. I don't care if it's Amazon, Google, whatever. I love seeing what's being published on a given subject. And so I also have this fun little hobby of like what I call Google autofill, where you type in a word and then it gives you like the most common searches right off the bat. So I'm about to show you two images and they're screenshots from my computer. Uh, They're not just like, they're not just made up documents. They're screenshots from my computer. How do I know that's true? I didn't know how to do a screenshot. So I Googled it before I took the screenshot. In case you're wondering, it's like shift command number four. And so, um, and so what I did is I went to the word Google and I typed in just a very short phrase into Google and it gave me the top results. You ready to see the first one? Check it out. Here it is. My marriage is, and that's all I typed. And I took a screenshot. Here's the top results. My marriage is dying. My marriage is over. My marriage is broken. My marriage is over. Now what? My marriage is boring. My marriage is ending. My marriage is lonely. My marriage is empty. My marriage is killing me. And my marriage is failing. I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of the idea of spending $20,000 on a given day to feel that. You want to see another really interesting Google search in the top results? Check it out. Here it is. Marriage feels, and then I pause, and I let autofill show me some of the top results. Here it is. Marriage feels like friendship. Marriage feels like roommates. Marriage feels over. Marriage feels one-sided. Marriage feels fake. Marriage feels suffocating. Marriage feels stale. Marriage feels like a prison. Marriage feels empty. And finally, marriage feels dead. Of both of those short phrases into a Google search bar, how many positive things did you see? None. It's an interesting state. And so as we're getting ready to talk about real marriage, here's what I want to start by saying. You ready? I want nothing of what culture says is marriage. I want nothing of what the flesh says marriage is. I want nothing of what the enemy says marriage is. What I want is real marriage. And in order to do that, we have to go to the creator of marriage, the author of marriage, to study the blueprints of marriage. Because here's what I'm going to say, and it's this. If, if we're going to walk in what I call a Google marriage, I'd rather just not do it. But yet, when we look to the Word of God, the, the, the phrases, the words to describe marriage are actually drastically different than anything that we're commonly searching. And so in order to do this, we must fly in the face of culture and to turn around and, and we must go back to the author of what real marriage is and to study what he says. And in order to do that, we've got to ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, he, he would speak and he, and he would move because this is going to be a heavy series. I don't pretend to know the stories and the life stories of all the individuals who are in front of me. But what I want to do is as we open the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, I want us to be encouraged and equipped to walk in something greater than what I would call a Google marriage. Church, pray with me. So Father God, we we just pause before you even in this moment. Holy Spirit, I ask as we dive into your word, as we look to your design, 
Uh, Lord, just even in these moments as we study marriage, would we encounter you in it? Lord, would we look to your word to see the beauty and walk in the power of it? And Lord, we cannot do this if you are not with us. So Lord, I pray, um, Lord, with whoever is in front of me today, with wherever they are at in life, God, I pray, would you meet them where they are and encourage them and strengthen them? As a result of today, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, listen, our anchoring text today is going to be Ephesians chapter 5. So if you want to start scrolling over there, uh, it's going to be Ephesians 5. I'm going to start in verse 22 uh, and go all the way through verses 33. And we're going to emphasize one verse in our time together. So again, if we're starting our series of real marriage, we must understand that marriage by design isn't from the government. Marriage by design is not from man. Marriage by design is first from God. And so in order to do that, we got to go to his text and his word by the power of his Holy Spirit. And let's see what he says. So I'm just going to start in Ephesians 5, 22. You ready? <clears throat> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... Also, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church to him in himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one's ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here's our anchoring text, verse 32. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again, I'm going to read verse 32. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If we're going to study what a vertical design of marriage is, then we've got to first acknowledge this. Marriage is designed by God to point to God. Spoiler alert. You aren't the point of marriage. Marriage is designed by God to point to God. You see, in the, in the New Testament, it's the most common New Testament reference that keeps mirroring and pointing back to Christ's accomplishing work on the cross and his redemption of people. You saw it in Ephesians 5 multiple times. It goes, husbands, wives, husbands, wives, husbands, wives. Christ, church, Christ, church, Christ, church. The role of the husband is mirrored off of Christ. The role of the wife is mirrored off of the church. And so we start to see this, and it's this, that um, God has mirrored what he did with Christ and the church, and he's paired it with a husband and a wife. Marriage is designed to point to God. God's ordained marriage to open a unique window for a world to gaze through to see the beauty and the character of who God is. This is why we hold marriage with reverence. This is why we do not, as believers, hold marriage lightly. It's because God has ordained marriage 
to show an unbelieving world who their God is, and at the same point, to show believing spouses who their God is, and the unbelievers would see the beauty of that God and surrender themselves to him, and at the same point, it would take believing spouses and it would lead to greater worship of who their God is. you got to understand, marriage at its core, you know what it is? Marriage is evangelism. Stop and thinking about that. Marriage is evangelism. What is evangelism? It's telling the people the good news of Jesus Christ and how he has redeemed us from our sins and our trespasses. But what did Ephesians 5 just say that your marriage is? It's Christ and the church all over again. Your marriage at its core is an opportunity for evangelism. Marriage is a visible measure for the lost to see the character and nature of God himself. How do I know? Like, watch this. So as a counselor, there's a couple key ingredients that you must have in your marriage to have a healthy marriage. You want to see what some of them are? Let's throw them up. If you're going to have a healthy, flourishing relationship, here are some fundamental ingredients to it. You ready? It must be a relationship that has patience. It must be a loving relationship. The individual needs to be steadfast, forgiving, protective, trustworthy. Name a season in your marriage where you didn't have to walk through one of those. That is all of our marriages. Even secular psychologists would agree these are essential DNAs to having a healthy relationship. But can I first say something? And it's this. Before these were great ingredients for a marriage, and I'm going to my next slide, it's this. These were first characteristics of the nature of God you start to see that the necessary ingredients to have a healthy, flourishing marriage between a husband and a wife, it's actually those ingredients are first shown through the nature and the character of who our God is. And please hear us. There's a ton more verses behind each and every one of those themes. That is not conclusive. There's many more. And you start to see this, that even secular psychologists are like, this is what's good for a relationship. This is what's good for a relationship. And the Lord goes, I know, I'm that. And I've designed that to portray in your marriage and to play out in your marriage. And you start to see that, like, some of these attributes in the hard seasons of of marriage, they're hard. It's not easy to be forgiving. But that's why God has first modeled that forgiving nature through Christ in the church. So how much more can we now go do that in our marriages? So as secular psychologists sit there and they study what's great for relationships, nothing wrong with that. I sit there and I go, actually, those ingredients are used to design to point us to who God is because he is those things and he gives us that in relationships. You see, when we walk in the vertical design of marriage, we put on display to a world like a play with multiple acts, a story that would point to the beauty and the power of who our God is. This should put the myth to death that your friends don't know the truth of who God is. Because if they have witnessed your marriage, they should be able to see the God behind the marriage. You see, my name is Matt King. And so when when people would look at my marriage, they wouldn't see Matt King When people look at my marriage, they shouldn't see Becky King, my wife. What they should be able to see behind Matt and Becky King, behind it all, orchestrating, designing it, is a king of kings. That reference only works because my last name is perfect for it. Kai couldn't use that one, so there you go. 
But then you start to see this, that, that when we walk in a vertical design of marriage, they should, the lost world should be intrigued going, there's something behind there. What, what is going on here? There's a design. There's a power. What is it behind you? Because I know you and you're not that special. And you say to your friend, wow, that kind of stung. And then you go, no, you know what it is? This marriage is something that I've been entrusted with, but it's first been designed by a creator, and his name is Christ. And they're like, wow, look at the dynamics between you and your husband. Look at that forgiveness. Look at that gentleness. Look at that grace. And an unbelieving world would go, and they would look at it and go, what is behind you? How do you do that? And you go, I can't do that. But Christ has first done that with me, therefore I can do that. And suddenly now an unbelieving world goes, there's something better here because I have a Google search marriage. And then we get to say that something better isn't us. It's the God behind us. So you start to see that marriage at its core, it's evangelism. It's evangelism to an unbelieving world, but something beautiful at the exact same time. As an unbelieving world looks into the vertical design of marriage and sees a God behind that at the very same time for you as believing spouses, when you walk in a vertical design of marriage, when you walk in God's design of marriage, you know what it does? It increases and fosters your worship and affection for Christ. You cannot walk in the joys of marriage and have it end there. You cannot taste the goodness of marriage and have it stop there. That's not God's design. You know what it is? That you would walk in the joys of marriage and enjoy it. That you would taste the goodness of marriage and enjoy it. But in a vertical design of marriage, you would take that goodness, that greatness, that sweetness of marriage, and you would now let it lead to a worship service in your soul of who God is. Let me ask you guys a question. It's this. Because the oneness you experience with your spouse, I want you to know... That oneness is actually designed to be a foretaste of the oneness that we have with Christ. Here's a great question. If a vertical design of marriage for us who believe in Christ should increase our worship, what does the worship service of your marriage sound like? Here's another great question. When was the last time you tasted the sweetness of marriage, the joys of marriage, the greatness of marriage? And you took it one step past just enjoying it. And you let it roll over into a deep worship of Christ in your life. When was the last time you exercised that in your marriage? Or you want to scare your question? Every marriage is a worship service. Just of what? From the moment you said, I do, at the altar, and you did that awkward kiss in front of everybody that nobody does well, your marriage has been in a constant state of worship. Just of what? What's the loudest worship song of your marriage today? Is it worship of God or worship of you? Is it a worship of God or a worship of your comfort? Is it a worship of God or a worship of your pride? Is it a worship of God or of your plans? Is it a worship of God or is it a worship of your control? You see, in, in marriage, you either foster the worship of God in your marriage or you hinder it. Which do you do? And I'm not here to pretend. I, I, 
there's some of us here in this room who not only choose to not worship Christ in our marriage, but you try to hinder, hold back, restrain, smother, and choke your spouse's worship and pursuit of Christ. How do you know this is you? You don't lay a hand on your spouse. That would be too obvious. And there would be too, far too many God-fearing men and women up here who would take you out back to a shack and do a unique type of ministry to you. Do you want to know the number one way I see this as a counselor? It's a tactic called emotional cold war. Some of you were alive during the Cold War. Did you see missiles launched during then? No, you didn't. But it was a very tense, very aggravated state where you were hyper-vigilant, hyper-aware, and super uneasy. And so as your spouse, it doesn't matter, husband or wife, tries to pursue God, what you do is you do emotional Cold War tactics. You make sure that if they worship God or they go to try and pursue God, they're going to come back at a deficit. You're going to stonewall. You're going to shut down. You're going to be passive-aggressive. You're going to be angry. You're going to be something. And so what you do, not only is you do not worship God in your marriage, you try to hinder your spouse's worship of who God is in your marriage. I, I want to strangely encourage, if that's you here today, I want to strangely encourage you. One, don't do that. But we're a church that will walk with you if you don't know how to not do that. We will a church that will partner beside you to take you from where you're at in that angry, insecure stage. And we will encourage you to lead your marriage to something far, far greater than anything that you could imagine. And if you're that spouse that feels that from your other spouse, I want to encourage you, continue to posture yourself before the Lord. He will sustain you and he will guide you through it. And if you're that spouse that hinders that worship, I just want to warn you, it's not your spouse you have to look out for. If you can posture yourself like that in your marriage, the fear of the Lord has exited your heart and you are now opposed to him and he is opposed to you. And if he is gracious, he will snap you and bring you back to repentance. But you got to understand, if we're going to walk in a vertical design of marriage, marriage is designed to point us to God. But you know what our sin nature does? It's designed to point us to God, but we're constantly trying to take that arrow and we're trying to pull it to me. Anybody else do that in their marriage? Just me? Okay, I just outed myself. Apparently I'm the only sinner. Praise God. All right. I'm in front of fully sanctified people. What a rare congregation. And so what happens in this moment is we try to take this arrow that's designed to point to God and we're constantly going, no, God, it's not about you, it's about me. It's not about you, it's not about me. When you make it about you, you welcome a Google search marriage. Because what you've done is you've created a horizontal marriage that has to do with you and other people. That's not a vertical design of marriage. Marriage, first and foremost, is a vertical design, not a horizontal design. Horizontal Google search marriage. Vertical, gorgeous, flourishing marriage. See, marriage at its core, it's, it's, it's evangelism to an unbelieving world. But at the same time, it increases. It fosters our worship of God because we taste the goodness of it. But then we see the creator of the goodness of it. And then, and then it rolls over to a soul level praise of him. Marriage is vertical by design to first and foremost points to God. Marriage takes an takes an unbelieving world 
and they see the beauty of God and they surrender to him. And at the same time, it takes a believing church and it shows them the beauty and the majesty of their savior. But marriage, it doesn't just first and foremost point us to, designed by God to point us to God. The second point is this. It's designed by God to show our need for deep relationship. Head over to Genesis 2. I'm going to start kind of giving a little context before we dive in. So Genesis 2, God and Adam are in the garden. Eve is not around yet. Okay? It's just God and it's just Adam. And they're conversing and they're talking. Adam's working in the garden. The context of this chapter leading up to the verse, Adam is hanging out naming animals. Gopher. Go. Dolphin. Go. Not really sure where he was standing to do both animals at the same time, but I wasn't there. Right? And then he goes, um, cat. Go. Pause. That's a lie. Cats were not in the garden. The garden was perfect. Cats were not welcome inside the garden. And maybe you're here today and you're a cat person. Um, I'm praying for you. <laughs> and so he's working in the garden. And, and the funny thing is, God looks at it and goes, there's another relationship that needs to come in. Look at it. It's found Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I want to pause here. A lot of times you hear helper and you think less than. Uh, I just want to stop and I just kind of want to gently kind of rebuke you. This term helper that's used to refer to women, it's also a very similar term that's used to describe the Holy Spirit. If you don't like the term helper, you don't like the term Holy Spirit. You have a problem with a third of the Trinity. That's not my problem. Now, going back to verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So here he is. He's naming the animals. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. I love this. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. First of all, I love the language Adam instantly uses for woman. Isn't it beautiful? Like all this creations before him, he's like rhino and giraffe, whatever. And then suddenly he sees woman. He goes, oh my goodness. This, this, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And you start to see what a gift her presence is. He talks about her in a way unlike he talks about other forms of creation. And so we start to see this. It's vertically designed to show that we are made for relationship. Not just relationship Facebook. That's garbage. Everybody's life is perfect on Facebook. We are made for soul-level intimate relationship. You see, marriage is first vertically designed to point us to God, but equally, marriage is vertically designed to embrace secondary relationships like a spouse. I love this. You know why? God's constant remedy for his people is community. See, what culture says is the exact opposite. Culture calls you, be a lone ranger. Be an individual. You don't need anybody else. I want you to know that what culture is saying isn't just a lie, it's sin. To shirk off 
intimate relationship. To forsake community with others is to reject the very DNA that God has instilled into each and every one of us. We are vertically designed for relationship and community. And if this is not the case, then God was wrong when he said, it is not good that man should be alone. I would make a helper for him. But what makes marriage different than any other relationship you'll enter with? You see, marriage is designed, it's vertically designed to be something called a covenant. We don't have covenants today anymore. You know what we have? We have contracts. What is it different? What's the difference? A contract is essentially if this, then this. You hold up your end of the agreement. I'll hold up my end of the agreement. You break it. I'm out. That's contractual language. We see that in the business world every day. Covenantal language is this. I'm in. I'm in. You fall short. I'm in. And so you start to see, here's the danger of this. See, you're only going to enter two spiritual covenants in your life. Your God and your spouse. And this is a degree of committedness unlike any other. But unfortunately in today's world, even in the Christian hemispheres, we've substituted covenantal marriages for contractual marriages. Please hear me, you ready? There's no security in a contractual marriage. None. You know what a contractual marriage at its core says? You make me happy. You make me comfortable. Do not bother me. Do not get in the way. You bow down to me and my desires. God forbid you have any needs because I just don't feel like dealing with them. A contractual marriage is you better perform. If you perform, then I'll perform. But it's an unstable secureless relationship. But please hear me. There is a great security and a great power to covenantal marriages. Horizontal marriages are contractual. Vertical marriages, by design, are covenantal. Covenantal marriages take both parties and they choose to elevate the other above themselves. A covenantal marriage goes, I choose to die to me to elevate you to the cross greater and greater and greater. I'll die for me so that you can live greater. You know, the language of a contractual marriage is in the storm, I'm out. In the hard season, I'm out. In the trial, I'm gone. Good riddance. Covenantal marriages says in the storms, I'm in more. In the trials, I'm all in. Difficulties, in. Wounds, in. There isn't a time in a covenantal marriage where the ante doesn't get upped of the degree of inness and, and uh, the degree of faithfulness that you have towards that covenant. Do you start to see how good, how safe this is? This, this hey, there's going to be times when I limp and I struggle and I fall short. And instead of trying to cover it up with a bunch of emotional makeup so that you don't get displeased with me, what you're going to do is you're going to see me for who I really am and you're still going to embrace me and that you're going you're gonna to accept me and you're going to lead me to the cross greater and greater. Isn't that a gorgeous marriage? 
You don't have to fake it till you make it. You don't have to wear masks. You don't have to hide. What I love in Genesis chapter 2 is that there literally, it goes, my favorite verse of Genesis chapter 2 is it says, Adam and Eve are in front of each other and they're naked and unashamed. Please hear me. When you hear naked and unashamed, I don't want you to think like, oh, they're just not wearing clothes. No. They were fully vulnerable on every level in front of each other. And there was no shame. Do you see the beauty of the degree of relationship God has designed us to have? That because of the redeeming work of the cross, a husband and a wife could essentially be naked in front of each other. And I'm not merely referring to physically. There would be an emotional and spiritual nakedness in front of each other. And in that moment where you could most hurt each other, because you're so vulnerable, is the moment because of a covenantal marriage that's vertical by design. It's actually the moment that you can most embrace each other because you are most known, most vulnerable, and yet most embraced. But please hear me. When I say that marriage is designed by God to point to God, when you see that vulnerability and that embrace between a husband and wife, is that not what you have with Christ? That's why he keeps referring to Christ in the church, Christ in the church, Christ in the church. Our moment of salvation was we were fully naked in front of God. And yet in that moment, he embraced us. He saw all of our shortcomings, all of, our, of all the stuff that we just wish never happened in our life and wasn't in our testimony. And he still goes out of his great love, according to Ephesians 2. He adopts us into this. You see, every single point that I talk about marriage, it's this. You can't utter a word of marriage. You can't sketch a line on the blueprint of marriage. You can't take a step on the path of marriage without encountering the goodness, the steadfastness, steadfastness and the ever-present nature of who our God is. It's almost like he's designed marriage to point it to him. Oh, wait, no, that's Ephesians 5. He has. That's why an unbelieving world can look at your marriage and it's evangelism. But if, if marriage is vertical by design, if marriage is designed by God to point to God, if marriage is designed to show us our need for true relationship, how can I ever walk this out? This sounds really difficult. Matt, you don't know my circumstance. Matt, you don't know what I've been through. And I'm here to say, I pray everything that you hear me saying today is laced with the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's why I want to push back and say, here's how hope enters. If you're here and you're like, Matt, I have a Google marriage. In fact, I think my Google search is a little more vulgar than what came up on the screen. Matt, help me. Here's why we have hope. God did just not just give us marching orders or a blueprint. We have hope that this can be done, not because of you and how great you are, because you're not, but because of him and how great he is. And this is my final point. It's this. It's designed by God and sustained by God. This is why we have hope. Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to publicly pick a bone with a lot of people up here. I just moved up here. You're making me look very unhandy in front of my wife. I move up here. I've stopped asking people what they do. You know why? You and your mother are contractors. 
And so I come up here, and not a word of a lie, the first guy I meet, other than staff, we're doing like hope groups, and, and a guy walks past me, and he smells like wood. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this guy. And so like, I pretended like I had something important to go do in my office. I closed the door, and I called my wife. I'm like, Becky, Becky, the guys up here smell like wood. You wouldn't believe it. <laughs> And she's like, of course, I'm a ridiculous guy by nature. Matt, that's not funny. Don't make fun of them like that. I was like, no, no, you don't understand. This guy, I just met him. He smells like wood. He's got to be so handy. And then, so what happens is, here's what happens. Right? Um, I'm not handy whatsoever. Um, we put up a wood wall in my church office. I, I, I'm using we quite loosely. Eric helped me. Um, we tap conned the wood into the wall. And by that I meant I held the cup of water that he dripped the dill bit in when it got too hot. That's the extent of my handiness. I held a cup of water. He dipped it in there. And so in this moment, what happens is this. You ready? If you invite me to work for your contracting business, I'm going to show up with the greatest of intent. I am going to work hard onto the Lord. And guaranteed, within 15 minutes, I've set the project site back, like, at least 20 weeks. <laughs> I'll tap con something you shouldn't have tap conned. I'll do... Why? Because I'm going to be given a blueprint to a house, and somebody's going to go build it. I can't do it. I'm just going to be frustrated. I'm going to give up, and I'm going to be disheartened. But please hear me. You ready? Your God didn't just lay out a blueprint in front of you. Your God laid a blueprint out in front of you and says this, by the way, I've given you my spirit and I have first done it, therefore you can do it. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging that as he lays out the blueprint of marriage, he would look to us and go, Matt, I know you can't do this. And so as you look to my word, I'm also giving you my spirit. And when you're discouraged and you're falling short and you don't know if you can do it, I want you to know I have first done it because it's Christ in the church. And therefore, if I'm calling you to do it and you have my spirit, I will do it through you. Here's the beautiful truth of marriage. It's designed by God, breathed by God, sustained by God, fueled by God, and brought to completion by God when we submit ourselves to him. The next couple of weeks are going to be strong weeks. They might be difficult weeks given whatever you might be going through. Pastor John is going to be talking about roles of a wife. I'm going to be talking about roles of a husband. Pastor John's going to be talking about brokenness in marriage. Pastor Godfrey is going to be talking about singleness. No doubt, these are going to be high callings. These are going to be high teachings in a broken world with broken people. And when you hear these teachings, you're going to do one of two things because you're a human being. One, you're going to be in awe of how you can't do it, and you're going to be paralyzed and discouraged. You're going to place all your hope, all your affections, everything on your life experience, your ability, your wisdom, and your strength. And you're going to place all that awe on how you can't do it, and you're going to be paralyzed and destroyed. I want to encourage you, don't do that. I got a better awe. Take your awe, your thoughts, your affections, your hope, and place it on his ability and his adequacy. If he's first done it and modeled it to all of mankind through the cross, how much more can he do it with the king's? His provision, be in awe of his presence of your life. And in turn, you're going to see that you're going to be empowered to walk this out by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Long before we're going to be talking about roles of husband and a wife, we're talking about the vertical design first. Why? It gives us hope to now walk these things out. We're going to walk this out, not with the skill of your hand. We're going to walk this out with the posture of our heart before the Lord. You want to know what the key verse for all of this is? Right before it talks about husbands and wives, here's the key verse. It's Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How do both spouses mutually die to self to serve the other? What is the yeast to this rising bread? What is the gasoline to this car? What is the dash of kosher salt to this rare steak? What is the bow on top of this wrapped presence? And it's this, your reverence for Christ. You know what the beauty of the gospel is? It's freed you from your spouse so that you can unconditionally love your spouse. Don't have reverence for your spouse. That's not the design. And don't have reverence onto yourself. That's not the design. Revere Christ. It's a heart posture where you, no matter what your spouse is doing or how they're performing or how they're behaving, how they're speaking, how they're acting, it's between you and your God. <coughs> Before he talks about the roles, he literally is going, you don't got a shot. You can't do this if you don't have me. You want a vertical marriage? You have to go to a vertical God and that's me. And unless you revere me, unless you place your hope on me, your affections on me, guess what? You won't do it. At best, you're going to be Matt showing up to a job site and you're going to destroy everything. The greatest strength and ingredient to your marriage here today, wherever it is, wherever your marriage is at, the greatest strength and ingredient isn't you and it isn't your spouse, it isn't your 401k, it isn't your compatibility and it isn't your golden doodle. It's your reverence, your worship, your adoration, your surrender and your allegiance to Christ. No doubt as we've talked in both services here today, there's individuals getting ready to get married, aren't married yet, are married, having a horrible marriage, having a great marriage, or on the tail end of a divorce. And I want to sit here and I just want to pause and just say, I want to encourage you with something, and it's this. If a reverence for Christ is a heart posture, wherever you find yourself on the spectrum today, as you revere Christ and surrender to him and come to him, I promise you, he desires to meet you and to speak to you and to lead you. So whether you're limping, you're broken, or you're barely running, when you revere Christ, it changes the equation. And here's the beauty of it. Your reverence for Christ, nothing can affect it. Nothing can come between it. It's your heart posture before the Lord. And so often what I'll say, even as a counselor, is this. If something's off in your marriage, I don't want to hear vertical talk. I mean, I don't want to hear horizontal talk. Something's off in your marriage. I always go to Ephesians 5.21 and I go, how's your reverence? Because husbands, you don't got a shot if you're not revering Christ. Wives, you don't have a shot unless you're revering Christ. But here's the beauty of it. Wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whatever you're walking through or have walked through, when you revere Christ, he meets you in it and he transforms it and does something great when you choose to submit to him. So as the worship band comes up, I just want to end with this. Marriage is first vertical by design. 
It is from God to point us to God. It is from God to show us our true need for deep, intimate relationship. But the reason that we can take heart, the reason that we can walk in the fullness of God's design is because when our hearts are postured before the Lord in worship, it's going to be fueled and it's going to be sustained by him. God has never been in the business of using perfect, self-sufficient, well-groomed children. He has never been in that business. He is in the business of meeting his children who are often found lacking and often found fatigued. And in the process of that divine encounter as you revere Christ, you will inherit a design, a strength, a wisdom, and a perseverance that you do not have in and of yourself. And what's the end result of that divine encounter? We get a greater glimpse of the glory and the goodness of who our God is. And this results in a deep, loud, soul-level worship of him. You want to hear the vertical design of marriage wrapped up in a sentence? And it's this. Marriage just increases the song that we are going to sing for all of eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Muskoka, pray with me. Father God, we commit these weeks to you. Father God, whether we're talking about husbands and wives, Lord, whether we're talking about brokenness, Lord, as we talk about your design, would we constantly have encounters with you through it all? Lord, um, I pray for whatever is in front of me, Lord, uh, whoever is discouraged or apathetic or limping, Lord, who's ready just to give up because nothing's going to change and, and our marriage is never going to get better. Lord, I pray in these weeks, would you do something far greater than anything we could ask? Would your spirit move in a way that we did not anticipate? And Lord, as you do that, the end result wouldn't just be a greater marriage. No, no, no. It would be something far greater than that. Lord, would it result in a deep, soul-level worship of the author and the creator behind marriage. So Lord, as we've talked today, all we can say is that even as we talked about marriages, we've constantly seen your goodness, your patience, your grace, your steadfastness. As we talk about marriage, we can't help but see Christ in the church. And so Father God, with wherever we are today, meet us and do something so great, so profound, it would lead to a soul level worship. In Christ's name, amen.